Our next section in Psalm 119 begins at verse 121. And it's on the Hebrew letter Ayin. It's the 16th section here in Psalm 119. Psalmist begins this section. I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the proud oppress me. As in other parts of this psalm, when the psalmist says, I've done justice and righteousness, we know that it's not a claim to sinless perfection. It's confidence as to the general righteousness of his life. You see, the psalmist knew his own life and he knew the lives of those who oppressed him. And he knew that his life was dedicated to God imperfectly as it was, but he knew that their lives were not. No, no, no. This was not a self-righteousness. It's a confidence in God. It was a confidence in his spiritual condition and a separation from those who did not know God. He knew something that I hope you can know too. The psalmist knew that his life was different from the life of the ungodly. Isn't this something that isn't known commonly enough? That we just don't know that our lives are any different. But shouldn't there be some difference in our life between us and those who don't follow God? You see, he knew this. He knew that his life was different from those who rejected God. And the difference was more than just in his theology. The difference was in his life. And so therefore, knowing though that he's not sinlessly perfect, he says there in verse 122, be surety for your servant for good. You see, the psalmist was here asking God to defend him, to stand up for him. And it was only through God defending him that he could avoid the oppression of the proud. Says God, take my interests as if they're their own. That's what a surety is. The surety says, you have a need. I'm going to regard your need as my need, and I'm going to represent you. And that's what he's saying. God, won't you represent me? Won't you be the one who stands for me? And this, again, is evidence that his previous claim to justice and righteousness was not in a self-righteous, absolutist sense. You see, if he felt that he was completely just and righteous before God, he wouldn't plead for God to stand as a surety for him, but he did. He said, no, God, I know that I'm a sinner before you. Therefore, I need you to intercede for me. You see, the psalmist could cry out to God much as Job did. In Job chapter 17, verse 3, Job cried out, Now put down a pledge for me with yourself. He prayed that God would do for him what Jesus has promised to do for his people. Be to them a guarantee of the covenant. And so he says, Please, Lord, verse 122, do not let the proud oppress me. You see, this is another rare example, verse 122, of a verse in the psalm that does not mention the word of God in some way. Let's read it again, just because it's so remarkable, right? Look at verse 122. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the proud oppress me. 
Again, it may be the idea that he has his eyes just a little bit too much on those who are attacking him, right? And for a momentary glance, he puts his focus on them instead of on the Lord himself. But he comes right back again. Look at verse 123. It's beautiful. He says, my eyes fail from seeking your salvation and your righteous word. I like that. This is another indication of how committed the psalmist was to the word of God and how much he valued the salvation that came to him in and through the word of God. He said, listen, I look to your word, God, with such eagerness, with such intensity that my eyes ache. I don't know when the time is that you've had that, that that you were so diligent seeking after God, seeking after his word, that it made your eyes hurt. Now, this waiting expectation that he had, the fact that he says here, my eyes fail from seeking your salvation and your righteous word. It shows that he had a real waiting expectation that he would put his focus on God and his word and trust that salvation, that deliverance would come to him. You see, the psalmist was willing to have faith until the experience came and then he would wait for God's salvation. He would wait as long as it took. Lord, I'm going to seek after you and I'll keep seeking after you for as long as it takes. And when he seeks after God, he remembers what he needs from God. Look at verse 124 where he says, deal with your servant according to your mercy and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. You see, the psalmist understood that when God teaches his people, it's an example of his mercy. You know, God has no inherent obligation to teach us, does he? Could anybody fault God if he just kind of said to humanity, well, I put a brain in your head, you figure it out. But he doesn't do that, does he? But to the seeking, inquiring heart, God says, I will teach you. I will guide you. And why does he do that? Because he's rich in mercy. It's the merciful impulse of his heart that says, I'll teach you the way in which you should go. And then he goes on and he cries out to God uh, here, right here in verse uh, 125. I am your servant. Give me understanding. For the third time in five verses, the psalmist calls himself a servant of God over and over again. God, I'm your servant. I'm your servant. And he understood that if he was a servant of God, it meant that he had obligations to his master. Is that not true? Does not a servant have obligations to his master? The servant is obliged to serve his master, to obey him, to follow his guidance, to follow his every instruction. But friends, isn't it also true that the master has obligations to the servant? Doesn't the master have an obligation to care for the servant, to provide for him, to protect him? And therefore he said, Lord, it's true. I am your servant. Therefore, would you give me understanding? Isn't it a beautiful thing for the servant to come before the master and say, Master, I want to serve you better. Won't you show me how to do this? Won't you give me understanding how I can serve you? Do you understand how this pleases the master? I think about that often. 
I think about that when a precious brother or sister, they come up to me and they want prayer because they're anxious about the future. They want to know God's will. And they're just sort of in one of those, oh God, show me what you want me to do. And usually the first impression upon my heart is how pleased God must be that his servant is seeking after their will. Do you know that put a smile on the face of God, doesn't it? When one of his sons and one of his daughters comes up to him and says, God, just show me what you want me to do and I'll do it. How happy that makes God. And this is the attitude of the psalmist right here. Matter of fact, he says it so beautifully there in the second part of verse 125, where he says, give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. He wanted understanding, not so much that he would know the future or the hidden secrets of the universe or even of his own soul or of somebody else's soul. No, he wanted the understanding so that he could know the word of God better. By the way, do you understand what this tells us? It tells us that the word of God can be understood. Did you know that many people don't believe that? They believe that this is an absolutely unknowable book. Now, I will agree that there are many things in this book that can only be understood by the spiritual person, right? The the person who rejects God, the, the person who is not born again by God's spirit. There are many things that they cannot understand. This book can be dark or veiled, can be over their eyes. But for those who are his children, this is a book that can be understood. Oh, I agree, perhaps not in every point. There are certainly some passages that seem obscure. But in the main, in the whole, we can read this book and understand it. And gratefully, God brings people into our life who can help us with our understanding of his word. And that's another gift from him. So he says, please give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. And then he goes on now in verse 126. Oh, I love this one. I hope your marking pen is busy if you're looking at this. It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. I cannot help but admire the holy boldness of the psalmist. Isn't that bold? To come before God and to say to God reverently in prayer, God, it's time for you to act. It's time for you to get busy. It almost seems rude for a man to tell God, it is time for you to act. Yet many who walk with God understand the desperate plea of the psalmist perfectly. He's so needy. He's so dependent upon God that it's good and right for him to come and make his request of God so boldly. You see, he is leaning upon God so much. His faith is so much upon the Lord. He's so much trusting in him that he says, God, if you don't act, I'm history. I'm wasted. So, Lord, it's time for you to act. Now, it is very true that we don't know the ways of God's timing. And many times I have been wrong on this point. Have not you? Haven't you been in the position where we thought that God must act now? Where in his wisdom and glory, he worked later. But friends, listen, all we can do is judge the situation as we can see it, right? If you feel that God has to work now, there's nothing wrong with you crying out to God and saying, it's time for you to act, O Lord. Now he may, through a dozen different ways, whisper to your soul, My child, I know what I'm doing. 
I know you think I need to act right now, but actually I'm going to work this out a little bit later. Now we cry to God, no, 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 you don't understand the situation, God. (laughs) And what does he say? Oh, no, I understand it perfectly. But it's true, friends. All we can do is pray according to all we can see. And when we see conditions as the psalmist saw them, it's good for us to say, it is time for you to act, O Lord. Why? Because they've regarded your law as void. You see, prompting his bold plea was the observation that many people has disregarded the word of God and the law of God. And you can say here that the law or your law is used in both sentences. They have cast off the word of God. They've cast off the law of God. And in such times... In such times when every man does what is right in his own eyes, as it says in the book of Judges, right? Isn't that interesting? We regard that in modern American, postmodern culture as heaven on earth. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Wasn't that wonderful? Instead, written upon God's judgment is that's a time of moral and spiritual anarchy and cultural disaster. But in such times, when every man does what is right in his own eyes, it's proper for the people of God to plead for him to act. I don't know about you, friends, but sometimes I can alternate between exhilaration and depression. I look at how great our God is and I get exhilarated, don't you? And then I look at the condition of this world. I look at the problems in this world. I read the news. Sometimes I shouldn't do that. I read the news and I see how bad this is and how bad that thing and how bad this outlook is. And oh, this is the forecast for this. And I look at all the things and all the things in the news. And it's just, it's, it's overwhelming. So Lord, it's a disaster. You, you come back and say, Lord, our culture, our society, morally, spiritually, financially, governmentally, educationally, any other lee you want to put on, it's all going down the tubes, Lord. And listen, and we cry out to God and we say, oh, Lord, it's time for you to act. And so many times that's been the case for me, hasn't it? For you, too, as well. You think about problems and they seem horrible. You pray about problems and God gives you peace. You think about your own problems, your own needs. And it's a little bit of agony there. You pray about them and God speaks assurance to your soul. He goes on here, verse 127. Therefore, I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. Therefore, I consider, excuse me, therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. I hate every false way. You see, other people regarded the word of God as null and void. Did you see what it said in the previous verse? For they have regarded your law as void. They don't care about your word, Lord. But the psalmist, he said, listen, that may be what the world does. But as for me, your word is more precious to me than fine gold. You see, he decided to love the commandments of God in response. He would value them more than gold, even more than fine gold. 
You see, when the psalmist remembered what kind of men considered the word of God to be void, it made him love the word of God all the more. And when he considered, or when we consider, the monstrous men who have been enemies of God's word, men in our own age, such as Stalin and Hitler and Mao, These people have been enemies of the word of God. It makes us find the word of God even more lovely than before. Isn't this one of the great evidences of how great the word of God is? To see how horrible its enemies are. And then he says, Therefore your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. Do you believe that? I do. I believe that the word of God is right. That it tells the truth. That when the Bible gives us history, it is right and true. The events actually happened as described. When the Bible gives us poetry, it is right. It is true. The feeling and the experiences were real for the writer and they ring true to human experience. When the Bible gives us prophecy, it is right and it's true. The events described will come to pass just as it was written. When the Bible gives us instruction, it is right, it's true. It truly does tell us the will of God and the best way of life. And when the Bible tells us about God, it is right and true. It reveals to us the nature and the heart and the mind of God as it is, as much as we can comprehend. So knowing all this and knowing how wonderful and how precious the word of God is, notice what he says. He says, I consider to be right. I hate every false way. Because the psalmist loved and trusted the word of God so much, he naturally hated every false way. He could not love the truth without also hating lies. Jesus said much the same thing, did he not? Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot love the truth without hating lies. And significantly, he hated every false way, not just some of them. My heart was struck by a quote from cited in Charles Spurgeon's commentary on this. He's quoting another man named William Cowper, but this is what he says. He says, hating every false way is very important. And now quoting him. If Satan get a grip of thee by any one sin, is it not enough to carry you to damnation? As the butcher carries the beast to the slaughter, sometimes bound by all four feet and sometimes by one only, so it is with Satan. Though you not be a slave to all sin, if you be a slave to one, he has a grip on you. And by that one sinful love, it is enough to captivate you. Friends, this should be our heart. Lord, I want to hate every false way. Tendency in my heart, and maybe yours at some times, is I want to hate most false ways. 
There's a couple I kind of want to cherish in my heart and my life. No, 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 Lord. I want to hate every false way. Work this in my life and an increasing love for your word. Father, that is our prayer. And Lord, we trust that as we declare our love for you and for your word and how you meet us in your word, Father, we believe that as our love for you and your word grows, that our hatred of false ways will also grow, will be more committed to you and more honoring to you with our lives. Help us with this, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.